This episode was made possible by our generous patrons. Welcome to episode 148 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. And this week we discuss William Goldman's 1973 novel, The Princess Bride. All right, man, this is another classic, uh, cult classic, I suppose you would call it. Although at this point, is it really a cult classic? Because it feels like this is a massive movie to me. Uh, slash, now we're reading the book for the first time. At least it was the first time for me. How about you? Yeah, first time for me. Um, this is like, I know early in the podcast, some people have said, like, I was saying this too often. Like, I remember saying like, this is one of my favorite movies. This is one of my favorite (laughs) movies. The Princess Bride is one of my favorite movies. Okay. Um, I don't think it's like the greatest movie ever made, but for me, it had like very, it was very present for me growing up. And, you know, I, I didn't really understand the nuances of it when I was, when I was young too. I kind of liked it as a surface level movie. This and... I remember Labyrinth were sort of just like on rotation that I was watching these two movies a lot and didn't really understand like how great the craft of each were individually. So, and I never read this story and I, I am excited to to watch one of my favorite movies on the podcast again. I, I was excited to talk to you about this because I feel like I have sort of a mixed history with Princess Bride. It was a movie that was hyped to me a lot by the people I knew. Mm-hmm. And I was always a massive fan of fantasy. And I remember watching it and finding it funny and going, okay, I can see why people like this when I was young. And I remember thinking like, kind of like never ending story. I feel like it's been a while since I've seen that movie, but I think that kind of has a framing device too. Um, It's like you're getting the movie of the book that's being read. And I remember that's essentially what this is. Like, right, like Fred Armisen's father comes in and starts reading him this book, and then that's the story you get. Fred, and, Fred Savage. Sorry, Fred Savage. Who's Fred Armisen? Yeah. Oh, that's the guy from the uh, from Portlandia, SNL. right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. When you said it, I was like, it felt weird, but I was like, yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, sorry, it's uh, it is early in the morning. Uh, I'm not gonna tell you what time because then you might judge. But it's early for me. I'm on my second cup of coffee. We'll see how this goes. So the framing device of someone reading the the book, it it sort of gives the film an excuse to be extremely tropey and sort of satirical in tone. And uh, I think even young me got that. It was like, okay, we're going really over the top of this fairy tale story. And that's how they're able to kind of be so silly at times. And that was it for me. You know what I mean? Like, that's the whole movie. There's nothing else really to read into it. I don't think I really got into the satire or whatever. Um, and then I didn't see it again, I think, for years. And then I, I seen it, like, two two or three more times, like, as an adult. And I felt like every time I saw it, I liked it less. Um, Not that, like, it was bad. I just, like, the effect was wearing off on me. It was like, I don't find these jokes that funny anymore. Some of them are kind of dated. And the satire wasn't like deepening for me. It felt like it was, it was kind of like surface level, like, uh, fairy tales are kind of on the surface ridiculous. Um, we're going to make a fairy tale. We're really going to lean into it hard 
And then, like, there's moments of, like, yeah, this is a really sort of biting satire. But a lot of it was, like, kind of embracing the tropes. And I'm cool with that. But um, I I don't know. It just sort of was just kind of okay for me for a while. Mm -hmm. Um, And then come to us covering this project, right? And honestly, I was kind of nervous about it because I was like, I think James really loves this movie. And I'm going to get into it. And then I think... We're gonna have to. We're gonna have some disagreements. We'll see how it goes. Um, mm-hmm. I, and and then like I'm gonna be like I know a lot of people love this movie, so I'm gonna be the guy on the podcast who's kind of a downer. Um, and we'll see how it goes when I get to the movie. Um, but all that being said, I had a journey with this novel. Um, I went into it sort of with the same kind of mindset of like I don't know how much I'm gonna like this. We'll see. And I remember getting into uh, the framing, which um, in this book is very is pretty different than the movie in that it's it's all like the author is a character, essentially. Um, It's an author insert character who is telling the story of when he first heard the book of The Princess Bride, which is written by this S. Morgenstern um, fictional author who supposedly wrote this book that he is abridging and, and presenting to us. And I already started to go like, okay, this is kind of fun because it's it's like an author playing with form, right? It's getting very meta. He's he's like, I th- I didn't write this book. I'm just presenting it to you. I'm abridging it. This is you know, blame everything on this other guy. And I, I immediately started having a good time with that. But even still, when we got to the the story proper, it took me a little bit of time to get into it. And it wasn't really till the three, the like, uh, the Sicilian, the Turk, and the Spaniard all showed up that I really started getting into the book again and going like, oh yeah, this is fun. I, I remember I, I do I do like this. And then by the end of it, it had completely won me over. And I, I felt like so bought in. I was really enjoying it. Um, and I was like, I think I finally understand what people love about this story. Um, and then we get additional material in this book um, in the form of like a short story almost. It's like a chapter one of another book um, that's presented at the end of the version we have, which is like the the, the 24th. 30th year anniversary edition, although I think this was included in the 25th year. Anyway, it's kind of confusing. And that, like, really added something else to it for me. Um, But I want to save that, I think, for the end of this episode, because that is, like, outside the bounds of what happens in the movie. So a lot of people who are coming to this book episode who maybe have only seen the movie... um, I want to I want to sort of keep that because it's like very spoilery. If, if this is something that I think you are going to want to check out if you're a big movie fan, um, that, that particularly that ending that is written at the end of this. Um, all that being said, like I, I went through a journey with this man, so so I, I'm curious to know, like as a as a big fan of the movie, like how was your experience reading the book? It was a surprise, honestly. It was it was it was a nice fun read, and I, I honestly kind of had in my mind assumed that the the movie just improved on everything that the book sort of set up in a way and like really played up this this like meta nature really played up the satire played up like the the love letter to a fantasy like a, a like a, sort of like a genuine good-hearted fantasy tale that has the message of like you know life's not fair or whatever like like this story ended up having um but i was surprised at just the amount that the movie owes to this book because it really is a lot of the sort of the framing device, the comedic elements, the the genre blending, the sort of like the way that it's looking at fantasy and and sort of it's really funny because in within fantasy it's doing something new 
while using all the parts of everything that's old. Mm-hmm. So like it's I really had a fun time reading it. And like I said, I think it just it showed me how much, you know, the the movie owes to this book. And uh, and just the the to speak to just the story in general, the characters, every character in this in this is so interesting. And, and to get like expanded backstory for like the Spaniard and the Turk and to like, um, you know, to see more, it's just a really interesting perspective. And then, and then we got to talk about the the death zoo at some point, but that's a departure. So that'll be, that'll be something fun to dig into. Yeah, there is, uh, like you said, expanded stories. Uh, if you're a big fan of the movie and you are hoping to like learn more about these characters, you're going to get that. There is more about every character in here. Um, I think the plot holds together even better. Um, I understood more the motivations behind the characters more. Um, than I did necessarily in the movie, um, which was fine. It wasn't like it's bad in the movie, but like it just just more explanation behind everything. Exactly. Yeah. The uh, in the movie, they're trying to streamline and like, you yeah. know, you can be forgiven for like things moving a little bit too fast, to, like really fully understand the depth of like somebody's motivation in the movie. Whereas, like you said, in the book here, like you really get it. And and uh, I think it's only going to make my enjoyment of the our viewing next week really that much better. Yeah. And. The meta nature of this book is maybe my favorite element. Like the the idea William Goldman had to write this novel in the way that he did is the coolest thing about this story to me. And it's something that I didn't really appreciate about the movie because the movie itself is about is kind of about being an adaptation of a story that was read. You know what I mean? Like it, it's all about adaptation, and the book is also all about adaptation, but in a different way because it's a, mm-hmm. it's about like abridgment and it's about um, you know being an author insert and and like sort of mixing your own perspective with the material. And he gets into all this stuff about why he cut certain things and why he included certain things, which is all fictional. But the the discussion that he's having about it is like operating on multiple levels in, in, in right. layers of like what it means to adapt something. Um, I don't know, it's really and I mean, cool. it, it's, it's fascinating to know also that, that William Goldman was a prolific screenwriter too. Absolutely. So it's like, you're kind of, yeah, we're going to get into that. And you're having to think about the fact that he understands, you know, when, so, how an artist would look at someone else's art and like doing that within his own sort of like fictionalized version of a book existing and you know why some you know some Colombian university professor would would think would you know put their nose up at you cutting all this satire that that the original author was trying to build up but as someone who's trying to like abridge it and maybe make it more approachable and like uh in in order to do that cutting cutting certain portions to sort of like I don't know dig down to to the to the core kind of as what filmmakers have to do sometimes when yeah. they adapt works is like dig down to the core of what's trying to be said here and what's the most important thing, what's the most interesting thing, and then, you know, change things where, where yeah. needed. He's presenting himself as sort of like, oh, I'm the I'm the screenwriter who comes in and cuts out all the stuff and like doesn't value it and in in a way, but right. also it is kind of like you should cut this stuff. I don't know. It's really funny because yeah, he'll 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 break in and say just an aside here, uh, Morgan Stern goes on for 75 pages or whatever about about trees. And he loves talking about trees. He's got this whole thing. He, he, you know, he, had, he owned a bunch of trees at one point. And he really wanted to talk about them. <laughs> and uh, so I omitted all of that. And it just reminds me of reading epic fantasy and how that's a lot of people's like criticism of a lot of epic fantasy is like, you know, 20 pages about a feast and all, you know, all these pages about fashion or like courtly politics. Right. Like he, he omits all of that. He's like, ah, we don't want to get into the politics of the court. So I'm going to cut all of that. 
It's which is why funny. it's brilliant right yeah. it, it's just brilliant because it's like that's you have to understand the genre to such an extent yeah. to be able to break it in that way and to to poke fun at it but also like i said this is kind of a like when like when you push when it comes down to it the way that you understand the characters and the way that you come to care about the characters is that it is sort of a genuine fantasy tale that you can buy into and it's just like and it's got an epic nature to it and it feels feels timeless and it has all the the trimmings and sort of the trappings of a of a fantasy story or like sort of maybe your your typical fantasy story that you would your your classic fantasy story you know and i think you might be touching on some of the stuff that i felt mixed about um because i unapologetically love fantasy i'm a huge fantasy fan and fantasy nerd and i have been for a long time and i grew up that way and a lot of the stuff that people don't like about fantasy I I like those things. You know what I mean? Like I right. like diving into world building. I sometimes like learning about the trees in a world even if they're fictional or whatever or the courtly politics. Like I like that stuff. And so mm. I think part of my mixed feelings about the movie was it felt like someone was attacking the thing that I really like. Mm-hmm. And and it, it was like clearly they're pointing fun at it, right? And they're sort of celebrating it. But also I was I think I always felt a little defensive. Like you don't quite get why this is this is like important and why this is good and like um i, I think that this was all happening subconsciously i wasn't like having conscious thought of this i, I think just I think right. subconsciously i've always felt kind of defensive when watching this movie um but that reading the book changed that for me like it it showed me what is trying to be accomplished here is different than that and like you said it does at its core lean into what is great about this kind of story and what makes it so memorable. And the fact that he's able to achieve that, and that by the end, like, I really do feel this genuine affection for Wesley and Fezzik and Inigo and and Buttercup. Like, I feel, like, a strong affection for these characters and their story, and I'm rooting for them, and um, ha- have an emotional connection um i think that's kind of, that's that's an achievement when it feels like the whole story is also sort of making fun of itself right like to to do yeah. both is very difficult yeah i i you know i think that making fun of is sort of like i don't know i wouldn't call it making fun of because i do i understand what you're saying because i you know i feel similarly with fantasy maybe not to that extent but like when i read something like george r r martin i don't get i don't get frustrated because he's describing you know, the, the armor that they're wearing and, you know, what flag, what their flags look like and sort of, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. that's like, I'm, I'm into that world building when I'm reading a fantasy story like that. I think it's allow it's, it's giving you permission to like love that stuff while also understand that it's happening and be okay with it. And then also understand what, like in the same way that he shows this book to his son and his son can't get through it. Then you as a fantasy fan have been in that situation before where you've tried to show someone an epic fantasy novel that you love and they can't get through it because it's a cert- it's not the cert- you know it's not the voice for them or it's not sort of the de- the details that they're looking for or interested in and so it's just funny to see sort of the this flip side to that where somebody takes it and tries to make it more palatable for someone who doesn't necessarily like that stuff while also still giving you permission to like it i would say yeah no and you're right i think a lot of it comes down to like where i perceived the the author's motivation to be 
And, I, you know, maybe I was wrong in my initial perception of it. And, and I feel like this sort of shifted it. And, and like you said, like, it's it's more from a place of love than, than like, we're just going to make fun of this thing that we don't really understand. And I don't think that's what it's doing. I think it is it is from like a, you know, we're going to we're going to poke fun at this thing we all enjoy. You know, we all enjoy fairy 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 tales and let's all let's sort of make fun of them, but also embrace why we like them. Um, so all that being said, um, we're going to approach this episode a little differently than we have in the past because we have this sort of complex framing narrative that is interspersed throughout the book. We have additional material at the end, which we'll touch on at the end. Um, and then at the core, we have the plot of The Princess Bride, which is very similar to the movie with the with the additional material sort of added in there. So because of that, we're, we're going to just sort of... Um, jump around we're going to talk about differences we're going to do some light summary off the top top of our heads rather than reading a prepared one um and then we're going to move on into the to the sort of the end story which i do really want to talk about but i'm going to keep separate all that being said we're assuming that most people who listen to this episode either have a read the book and will be cool with that or b haven't read the book but have seen the movie and are curious about it and we're gonna we're gonna talk about it in a way that um will sort of fill you in on like what the kind of stuff that goes on so you can decide whether or not you want to read the book yeah, and, and I guess here is sort of a parting way for people who are interested in reading it. But I do think if you if you liked the movie, I think you absolutely should read the book because it, it you it's only going to further your enjoyment. And I think that, that that would be my recommendation. If you liked the movie, uh, read the book and maybe check this out later. Or if you know you're you're not interested in reading the book, come come tr- listen to why you know things are different or what we what we got out of the yeah. book. Maybe we haven't sold you yet completely. I want to yeah I want to give a very strong recommendation for me. This book has changed the way I feel about the Princess Bride. And for the better. So if you're like me and you are like, yeah, I'm a fan of this, but I'm not necessarily I don't get why everybody's like huge fans of this. You know what I mean? Like you never quite got the like extreme love people have. This book helped me get there. Um, I'm not saying it's perfect. And I, I do still think there's some stuff that has not aged well. Um, and early on, I remember being still on the defense on the defense, uh, you know, for the author because some of his like fat shaming and there's different things that go on that that rub me the wrong way but um mm-hmm. by the end it completely won me over so if you are like that and you're curious definitely check out this book um i am sort of surprised and saddened that it's not more well known because of how well known the movie is like this this seems essential to me so if you consider yourself a princess bride fan i think you got to read it and if you're on the fence about princess bride and you want to like it more definitely read it Okay, so before we get into all of that, I do want to touch on William Goldman, the person, because I actually think this is really interesting and sort of informs my reading of it as well. Um, Like you said earlier, James, he is an American novelist, playwright, and screenwriter. Uh, He came into prominence in the 50s as a novelist before turning to screenwriting. He won Academy Awards for his screenplays Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, All the President's Men, and his other works include his thriller novel Marathon Man and his cult classic The Princess Bride, um, for which he he adapted for both film versions. So that's also important to remember. He's writing these screenplays for these adaptations of mm-hmm. his own novels for for most of them. One of the things I, I won't get into like every little bit about his growing up. Um, he grew up in a Jewish family in Chicago. He uh, Went to Oberlin College, got a got a creative writing degree, served in the military, all that. One thing that I did find particularly interesting, though, and I think does inform this book, is 
His father committed suicide when he was in high school. He was an alcoholic who ended up committing suicide. Um, and I think that when you look at the story of Inigo, who was out hunting the man who killed his father, and very pointedly says, I want my father back in the fight. Like I, and then I think even in the meta narrative, we get a little bit from the author saying, like, I realized I was talking about my own father. That is very true. Whereas there's a lot of stuff in this book that is not true, <laughs> um, which mm -hmm. we can get into. Like a lot of this stuff, he's completely twisted in a, in a fictional way. But that is true. And um, I think gets at the heart of this novel and why it does resonate emotionally. Yeah, I mean, and you can see with Inigo, even like the alcohol as well. It sounds exactly. like his dad had issues with alcohol, yep. so that, so does Inigo. And I also like this sort of made me think of how William Goldman is able to use Morgenstern as sort of like a, a comedic element where he can he can write some like the parentheses were something that was making me laugh a lot, where mm -hmm. early on it would be like, you know, this is before this is before. I don't know any example. He he said it. He said it many times. But it'd be like this is before golf, but after you know croquet or something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like the time, the time never makes any sense. Yeah, this is this is after Europe, but before America, or this is after America but before Europe, or like it was like it's all over the place. You can't you can't put it anywhere in time, and it's by design. Um, just right. like Florin, you can't place any. It's like somewhere in Europe, but you know. He, you can't quite figure out where maybe it's near France or something I don't know right and then at the same time you have so you have that author making commentary on his book that was like ancient when when Goldman was adapting it you know per se uh, and then you have Goldman break in and talk about what Morgan Stern had been talking about so like it'll he'll be like you know this is this is Morgan Stern commenting on this writing like notes to his editor or something like that and then on top of that Goldman saying like you know if it bothers you ignore the parentheses because you know they can be excessive or whatever yeah. and it's kind of like a side note well but it, it and remained it's, in the he's so self-deprecating throughout um which I love like he's he 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 undersells himself he makes fun of himself he is sort of a he's not necessarily like this great author character um, throughout like he's kind of a schlubby guy um, he is far from perfect he's kind of a bad father <laughs> um, well yeah early, the first thing we get of him is like sort of like the, the the reason his pursuit of the princess bride and like like he's like nearly cheating on his wife and like isn't yeah. there for his kid's birthday and all this yeah. stuff and, and he desperately wants his son to like it and then his son doesn't and he's like viciously fat shaming him throughout um, which oh, absolutely yeah. I did want to also touch on uh he doesn't have a son. He has two daughters. Um, so that is all fictional. Um, why yeah. he is fictionally fat shaming his fictional son is an interesting <laughs> Like, I don't know how to try and, try and get sure. like what's going on there. Well, and and then not to mention his wife is he keeps talking about how his wife is brilliant, but she's like so plain and like he's bored mm -hmm. of her kind of Ellen, and she's yeah. like a brilliant psychologist and, and yeah. he keeps like apologizing to her within the text. Like he'll yeah. say something like mean to her and then say be like he'll be like, sorry, Helen or whatever. So his real life is Eileen instead of Helen. Um, and they did divorce in the 90s, which is referenced in the book. Um, so I don't, it's, it's where does fiction begin and where does, where's the real thing? I, I don't know. Um, right. but yeah, he is sort of vicious to Helen too, right? Like he, he's, he's not very forgiving of a lot of stuff. Although he also then like, I think he recognizes his own faults in that relationship. Um, so at least you could say that. Um, but 
if the, if she was just a 100% straight up real person, I was like, I don't know how you could how you could write this. Um, right. But it sounds like this isn't really her. This is like a just a different version of her. Anyway, so <laughs> all of this is framing device is setting up. He he wants the book for his son to read, and his son ends up trying to read it, doesn't like it. And then later we get his son has a son, and he becomes a grandfather, and his grandson is actually into the book and does want to read it. Um, and then it, it goes off onto even more stuff as he like connects with his grandson, um, who finally sort of appreciates, has shares his appreciation of this, you know, S. Morgenstern classic which is also funny because it's presented as if it's like real history but also a book like a fiction like a fictional novel um but then they right. go to a museum later of like the real thing so mm. he's blurring the lines of like even within the fiction is it real or not which I, you know it's right. fun you can do that when you're yeah. when you're doing this um anyway sorry we're getting into the reads we we're talking about <laughs> william goldman the person um famous screenwriter he ended up he he um he hi- he adapted Flowers for Algernon, a um, movie called Masquerade. He wrote Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, his first ever original screenplay. After re- researching it for eight years, he sold it for $400,000, the highest price ever paid for an original screenplay at the time. This is 1969 it came out. Wild. Just to be attached to that is pretty amazing like on its own if that was his only credit like that's a that's massive that's that's historic yeah and and i think he later has said that the only two things that he actually is proud of is that screenplay and the princess bride then he doesn't like the rest of his writing (laughs) which is kind of sad but he did that's all that quote so he he wrote a bunch of other screenplays papillion father's day 1971 the hot rock 1972 um and then he got into writing the princess bride um, he he also wrote a screenplay for it, the novel that he wrote, but it was more of a more than a decade before the film was made. So that's part of the thing that's sort of talked about in this movie is how long it took for this to actually get made. But it's also slightly mm-hmm. fictionalized, so it's difficult to like parse what is true and what isn't. It's really it's really interesting. Like there's the uh, speaking of Butch Cassidy is uh, the, he talks about the Cliffs of Insanity and how the Cliffs of Insanity were the inspiration for Butch the the cliff scene from Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. So it's like. I'm sure it's the other That's, way around, right? <laughs> it has to be, right? Because yeah. he wrote this later, unless he really was sitting on the story when well, he. Well, and that's based off. That is a true story, right? Yeah. Um, but he's playing with that, like what inspired what, which is which is pretty fun. Um, so to to continue, because this guy has tons of credits, um, he followed up the Princess Bride with the thriller Marathon Man, which he sold uh, as a three part book deal worth two million dollars. Again, this is in the seventies. Yeah, and then he sold the movie rights to Marathon Man for four hundred and fifty thousand dollars. So Goldman was making bank off of his writing, uh, big time. <laughs> I mean, yeah, he just the just the first screenplay was was the like you know the the most money ever made on a screenplay, right? So yeah. like he's clearly one of the one of the most wealthy or well respected screenwriters right. of the time. He's writing novels at the same time. Like this is an incredibly productive period for him. Um, he, he wrote the screenplays for the film versions of Marathon Man and Magic. He also wrote the screenplay for the 1975 film, The Stepford Wives, which I know is a big one. And then he wrote the screenplay, the script. I'm I'm also omitting some, he he did more than this, but uh, then he wrote the script for all the president's men where apparently he wrote the famous line, quote, follow the money, which is from that movie, which is often attributed to Deep Throat. Um, but it's actually written by William Goldman. 
That's awesome. Then in the 80s, he started to focus more on novels again. He wrote the novel Control, then The Silent Gondoliers, then The Color of Light, then Heat, then Brothers. Uh, Then he returned to Hollywood. He worked on Memoirs of an Invisible Man, Heat adaptation of his own book, uh, then The Princess Bride in 1987. And then he was hired to write the screenplay for Rob Reiner's 1990 adaptation of the Stephen King novel Misery. Um, which was considered one of King's, quote, least adaptable novels, which, of course, Kathy Bates won an Academy Award for and is referenced in the sort of metal materials surrounding this book in a pretty fun way where Stephen King essentially shows up as a character, uh, which is quite fun. It was fun, yeah. Uh, You know, we've covered so much Stephen King on the podcast. We feel like we know him pretty well now, and then to have (laughs) him pop in, it's, it's just funny. And he's like, he's in full, like, best-selling novel novelist of all time and goldman like really looks up to him and wants to impress him and like it was like almost cute the way he was interacting with him and i don't know it was it was it was funny it was like he was held up as this sort of paragon like the that william goldman really really looked up to and it's of course also this author insert right so um it's like the subconscious of of goldman or something going on but also like he knows that and he's putting it on page on purpose so i don't know it's fun right I mean, and this just goes to show like he's bringing all of this sort of writing that he's done, all these materials, all this sort of backstory and background to this adaptation that he would later do of this movie. Mm -hmm. So it's really it's going to be really interesting to to, like think of it through that lens. Just think like this is the man who wrote this novel Mm -hmm. and then see exactly like where his thought process was in adapting it because he'd already adapted and he sort of like abridged. A, a novel within a novel mm-hmm. and then also would abri- then would adapt that abridgment to you know what I mean it's like so much going on there yeah fictionally abridged so <laughs> right um, okay so I just got to get through some of his final credits here because I do think it's important he was uncredited as a script doctor for many different films including Twins A Few Good Men 1999 Decent Proposal The Last Action Hero Dolores Claiborne Extreme Measures he was credited on the movies Year of the Comet uh, the biopic Chaplin, uh, Maverick, 1994, The Chamber, 1996, uh, The Ghost in the Darkness, 1996, Absolute Power, The General's Daughter. He later, in it, late in his life, uh, wrote the screenplay for Hearts in Atlantis in 2001 and Dreamcatcher 2003, both films by Stephen King. And he adapted Misery into a stage play, which made its Broadway debut in 2015, uh, starring Bruce Willis and Laurie Metcalf. Okay, so I think we've we've sort of summarized all of his credits here. Long, long career. He did die in 2018, R.I.P. Um, of pneumonia, which played an important role in his life because um, he also suffered from pneumonia in 1970 in the early 1970s when he was writing this novel, um, which he references in the meta materials that really happened. And he died of pneumonia and complications with colon cancer. I think I read so. Um, yeah, I mean, what you said, twenty eighteen. So he was it yeah. was right after the thirtieth anniversary of the film's release. Yes, like the year right. later. That's that's pretty wild to think about. Okay, Whew. so that's a lot. That's that's William Goldman the person, um, and now we can get more into Princess Bride, which is this f- fantasy romance novel that combines elements of comedy, adventure, fantasy, drama, romance, and fairy tale. Um, it's it's really something else, and. Um, yeah, uh, I've been talking for a while. So hit me. What's your reaction to all that? Did you know like a lot of that stuff about him? So th- I, I I couldn't have placed his name to all of that stuff, but I definitely knew 
that the same person who worked on the Princess Bride worked on uh, Butch Cassidy. Did you but, know he uh, worked the rest on of Misery? No, I didn't. I didn't know that the either. The rest of that stuff I didn't know. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that he's adapting these Stephen King novels. It's really fascinating because I'm sure we're going to get to it, right? Yeah, I mean, we have to at some point. So, yeah, there's a whole story behind the actual making of The Princess Bride, the movie. Like, that's actually going to be really interesting. But I think we should save that for next week because, you know, yeah. that, that'll be more specific to the movie. So, in our version, there's a 30th anniversary intro, then a 25th year anniversary intro, and then it gets into the book which itself is an intro by this fictional author insert before we get to the Princess Bride, which is presented like a third of the way into the book. It's before actually the Princess Bride quote unquote starts, um, right. uh, which is just really interesting. But also um, because of that, it makes it very difficult to find out how long this book is when we were trying to look it up. And I think it's because people don't know what, like what's the length, what's the thing you want to find the length of. Um, and so it, it, it's, it's, it ended up being a, a bigger novel than we realized. And we probably should have broken this into two episodes, but we didn't. So, um, that's one of the other reasons why yeah. we're kind of jumping around a lot. <laughs> yeah. When I first started it, it was kind of confusing. Cause I was like, okay, so should I, cause it felt like without context, jumping into the 30th anniversary, having not read the novel yet. Yeah. Like, is that going to throw me off? Yeah. Is do it? Is this for people who have read it and they're returning to it? I personally so it skipped like... the first two. I, I, I started reading them a little bit enough to like figure out what they were. I skipped them, read the whole novel, read the final part, um, and then came back and read them read them through. I don't think you have to do that um, because this is like he plays with the ideas of like spoilers and stuff throughout. Like he often spoils things before it happens. Um, but if you do want to stay unspoiled for the very final chapters that he or chapter that he added on later in life, um, which I think is kind of worth not being spoiled going into. Um then maybe skip the intro stuff and come back and read it later because it is really interesting. But um, reading it first, especially if you if you haven't even read the book yet, it's kind of it was kind of a lot to try and take in. Yeah, it, it was, and, and so I did the same thing actually. I would say too because I was it like, was yeah. What's going on here? Because <laughs> he was talking about in the in one of them he was talking about sort of like adapting it into a movie, and I was like, well, we'll get to that after we've read the story, right? Like this yeah. is the stuff I want to hear after the story. So well, anyway, I, I did the same thing. I read the story and then went back for the the intros. Okay, uh, I, I think that's the way I would recommend it. He also plays this straight throughout. We should make point. He does not ever let on that the version of him you are getting is fictional. He also does not ever let on that S. Morgenstern is not a real person. He plays it right. as if that is he is that is what he's doing throughout. And that it carries into the additional 25th year and 30th year anniversary editions. So even though that is like from him, it is also more from the fictional version of him that adapted this from from this. So it, it's got so many layers to it. It's so it's so delectable. Like I love it. Just to talk about the the Buttercup's baby thing a little bit, he, he frames it as this like international copyright issue, right? Where like yeah, he's the got, reason he hasn't with, with the Morgan Stern estate, he's having all these legal problems with yeah, right. That's funny. He was only able to publish the one chapter in at the end for the thirtieth or the twenty fifth anniversary or thirtieth anniversary because like they allowed him to do the one chapter and like he would like to do yeah. more and but Stephen King was, was originally going to adapt it which I thought was really funny yeah and then he has a meeting it's with really Stephen fun. King in which he t convinces him to let him be the one to adapt it and, and abridge it which is really funny right. it was like he wanted to do it because he wanted to do it right I don't know so yeah so good 
it really is just like so and it, it is funny like yeah. it's very funny when you just like it made me laugh multiple times well it's and, also like a, know, with, a funny that isn't like a laugh out loud funny as much as it is just like a really rich satire and it's clever yeah cl- yeah it's so clever and the way it's like playing with the meta narrative uh, making fun right. of himself you know stephen king as a character which is r- something that i i love was really really funny and it, it's something you could only do if you actually like know stephen king in real in real life would you even dare right. to do that exactly yeah i'm sure stephen king just fucking loved it i'm sure he thought it was hilarious <laughs> yeah it's, it's so good so yeah into the story um the i think we should just talk about the beginning at first just because like the frame we have talked about the framing device some but he you know he, the reason he wanted to abridge this story is his father read it to him while he was like sick in bed with pneumonia right which so he's isn't true but okay we're engaging with the full fiction of the novel here right right Right. that's what i'm saying jumping into the actual story yeah yeah. so the like so his father the reason he wanted to do this abridgment was because he remembered loving the story when his father would read it to him but his father was abridging it as he read it to him so he never he until his adulthood didn't didn't actually know the true story so when he sent the book to his his son for his son's birthday he didn't understand that he was going to have to he wasn't getting his father's version of it so then when he went to pick it up and read it after his son had said he didn't like it, he realized, oh my God, there's a bunch of stuff in here that's really boring. No wonder my son didn't like it. And that's how he goes about abridging everything. Right. And so that's all talking about like, why is that in there? It's talking about adaptation, right? And he's talking about like different, having different versions of stories and also the very, very personal nature in which um, you experience something for the first time and how that can color the way you view it forever. Right. Right. I mean, he's he's literally saying, like, I was sick in bed. Yeah. So, like, that's the frame of reference he was in. He was sick and, like, like delirious in some points. And, like, his father was, like, a bridge. So, it's a very specific experience to this material that only he had. So, only he felt he was it, he was capable of doing this abridgment to make it, um, you know, more whatever. To make it the story that he knew it was and loved. It was, like, his favorite story he kept talking about. Well, in, in that way, it's also a, a love letter to stories and why and the importance they can have in our lives because if you'll remember young William Goldman in the book become is not much of a reader but then he becomes hugely obsessed with adventure stories and mm-hmm. um, he has this teacher which by the way there's like a whole thing about him like wanting to send copies of his first novels to his teachers and stuff that I found just really funny um, <laughs> it's like a fantasy I feel like a lot of authors have of like you know, you want to, you want to like send copies to people or something whenever you publish your first book. And I don't know, it's kind of fun. I I would be curious to like survey authors and find out like who they sent copies to, if they were able to, like if they had copies they could send, like, who did you pick to send it to that you didn't necessarily need to send it to, but you're like, I really want to send it to this person. I don't know. Yeah. I'd be curious to know. It's really funny. But anyway, and he sort of, he sort of is playing with that idea. You made me think of um, a part that I found to be particularly hilarious. So uh, William Goldman, as the as the abridger, he at one point felt that there was a reunion that happened between Buttercup and the Man in Black, and he basically said like Morgenstern left out any sort of reunion, and there was all of these reasons why. But I felt like it was cheating, and he needed to have shown us the reunion, so I wrote one, but my publisher wouldn't allow me to add it in, <laughs> yeah. and so he's like, and he's like, and if you so if you want to read that. Call them and tell them, and they're, they're going to send you a copy of my reunion because this is back before the internet mm-hmm. or anything, and we actually had another sort of asterisk. But um, basically, he wrote something 
and uh, within the story, he, he was not allowed to, he was abridging, but he wasn't changing. He wasn't adding anything his own. And when he attempted to do it, his publisher said, no, that's not sort of the goal of what we're doing here. So he wasn't allowed to do that. But he convinced his publisher to say that anyone who called or, or sent in a, a request by mail or whatever would be sent a copy of his of his reunion between Buttercup and the Man in Black. And and then the, there's like the asterisk since it's like the 25th and the mm-hmm. 30th anniversary of a website you can go to and you type in that website and you can go read his his uh, reunion scene. And it's just so funny. And that's like the, the most meta thing mm-hmm. I think is done in the story. Well, and did you type in the website? No, I didn't. Yeah, I was going to ask I you went you to did. it and it was a dead link. <laughs> oh, so, man. So I don't know. Like, I don't know if it's available somewhere, but it was like, oops, this page does no longer exist when I typed it in. So I don't that know. Sucks. It's even kind of funnier in a way <laughs> that like it didn't lead anywhere. I don't know. Because because and he was the, his whole his whole reason for saying that. And it's funny because he's like sort of poking fun at pr- publishing companies, too. Oh, for his sure. The reason behind that is he was saying like, you know, these bastards, are, they don't want to add this in. And uh, they said they'll send these, these copies. So even if you don't read it, just fucking get this copy and like make them spend the money to send it to you and everything like yeah. that. Just to stick it to the publishing company. Which is really funny. Yeah. Especially, you know, considering that none of this is true. <laughs> that, I know. You know, it's yeah. it's so good. Like, And I wonder if like in his head, he like has this like separate, like this is Morgan Stern. He's like a different version of myself as a writer. And then I am over here, like making fun of him and like adapting him. He's like more serious and right. So there's three versions of him. It's like the screenplay writer in him is like the other one. Like I don't know. There's like yeah. There's all different sorts of versions of him for sure. Because I think he's also the grandson in some ways at the end. You know, like he's he's yeah, he's true. all these characters in a lot of ways. He's he's both Anigo and the Man in Black and 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 Fezzik and, and many others. Yeah, he's everything, I guess. Yeah, I mean, in a way that authors are, but also I think in the way that he he asks you to engage with it in this sense because it is so meta and so there's definitely authorial inserts going on all over the place. So one of the things I think that also always threw me about this story was having names like Buttercup and Humperdinck and it it just being kind of silly and like i didn't know Mm -hmm. what to make of that i'm like am i supposed to take this character seriously and and i do think buttercup suffers a little bit in this book um it's hard to take anything at face value but if you take it at face value she is like such a damsel in distress she's so oblivious constantly she doesn't like ever know what's going on she's easily fooled by everybody um, she really is only given two two real, I would say two or three real moments of agency. One being when she pushes the man in black down the hill. Right. Which because she doesn't recognize who he is. Right. And then the other time is when she like says, I'm the queen. Everyone listen to me. And they all like run off and go try to save the save the prince or whatever. Right. And they are able to escape because of her. But yeah, I, I feel like she is sort of muted. So I'm like, I feel like in the movie she's given more to do and so w- much more agency, at least from what I remember, you know, maybe... I'm just bringing in some bias to the book. We'll I'll be to, interested we'll to, 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 to re reappraise that when I watch it. But if, for the book, yeah, it felt that was one of the things that I think I was kind of frustrated with too, because it was like, if we're going to invert tropes and we're gonna we're gonna play with like dismantling stuff, like that seemed like a place to do it, and he didn't really do it. Yeah, there. I do want to I do want to change what I said a little bit. I, I I don't think it's that she has more agency necessarily in in the movie. I just think that she's in on the joke, whereas I feel like she was kind of the butt of more jokes in the book. Yeah, if that I makes sense. That, so yeah. like she was like kind of played to be dumb and like not like like she didn't know how to spell something at one point, And it was like kind of make, making fun of her for that reason. 
So that does remind me when I was doing the research, I, I found that the, the real story seed of the Princess Bride was he started telling the story to his daughters when they were very young. And that's why she's called Buttercup. Like he, he was just naming stuff like silly names because this was a story he was telling his children. And I do wonder if he was trying to frustrate them or something with 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 her and, and how she was so oblivious. And like you said, like gets fooled by everybody and, and makes all these mistakes. I don't know, like what was what was the goal behind making her this way? Um, she one of the things I throughout it felt like there was this such an emphasis being placed on the way people look and tying that to like their value, <laughs> um, you know, and even within the meta narrative with his son, but within the book itself, it was very much like who the most beautiful woman in all the land is and who's um, number five, who's yeah. number four and how yeah. their rankings go up and stuff. Yeah. It was pretty wild. Right. But like, I see that he's being satirical, obviously, because this is something, you know, tied to these stories in the past, but it felt kind of like it was also just doing it. Um, and then like everybody like buttercup is so beautiful. That is like the only thing that people seem to value about her throughout right like that's why everybody's so taken with her she does jump in at one point and say like everybody says that about me can you say anything else can you say yeah you know, what about she, my brains so but like of... we haven't really been shown her as being smart <laughs> at all so yeah. it was kind of yeah. difficult although i would say wesley also doesn't seem that smart other than the fact that he like he yeah sure he outfoxes the sicilian and stuff but like i don't know he also just seems kind of dumb well, throughout in a weird way he's like me. the ultimate he's the ultimate sort of like what, what's the name for like a mary sue that's a man he's the ultimate version of that yeah yeah marty marty stew i think is what people say epitome of like everything goes well he's super lucky and then yeah. clever when he needs to be and yeah. just like total wish fulfillment for and, for and, and like on that. purpose i think right like we he meets right. he meets the strongest man in the world and beats him in a wrestling match he meets the best sword fighter in the world and beats him in sword fighting he meets the smartest most clever crafty tricky guy and he out tricks him and i think he's doing that on purpose right like this is this is sort of the way a lot of these stories go down um and i do think it's interesting when you take all of that and you compare it to what happens at the end of the book where he is sort of mostly dead and right. unable to like move and um he he can't use any of these um skills other than maybe his craftiness but like most of his skills are stripped away at the end and he's unable to use them um, right. which is sort of an inversion of what you might think, where usually at the end, it's the hero at the height of their power. Um, right. right. And instead, he's I, laid I, low. I do want to talk about some of the differences here. I think this yeah. is probably a good time to jump yeah, into the Indigo Fezzik stuff and their journey through the through the Zoo of Death. Yeah, yeah. So there's this thing called the Zoo of Death in Florin City, the final city, where there's like five levels and... Um, the man in black is being held prisoner on the fifth level and he's being subject to the machine, which is something in the movie where it's like sucking the life out of him. But Anigo and uh, Fezzik end up having to descend through the five levels of the zoo, which has all of these creatures that Humperdick like keeps in there because he's this like famous hunter. And um, go ahead. Like it's all different. Yeah. <laughs> different, different. I mean, different each stuff. level, each level is like a growing intensity of dangerous creatures. Mm -hmm. so it starts off with like the fastest creatures and then the strongest creatures and then poisonous creatures. And then like creatures that prey on fear or something like that. Yeah. So they, they fight like bats and, and snakes and, and like giant spiders and stuff or no, sorry, giant snakes, tiny spiders. That, that spider scene is still hilarious. Yeah. Um, 
where Fezzik just blows through the door. He just crashes through this door where this the deadliest spider in the world is waiting on the doorknob. So if you grab the door, door handle, you get bit and you die. Yeah. But he just smashes through it. Just <laughs> Not knowing. Pure yeah. instinct. Yeah. And then they, I think they squish it. They like see it. Uh, I think Anigo squishes it with his heel. Yeah. Uh, which is funny. But yeah, I mean, there's a giant snake at one point. And then like, I, I also love the way he plays with like, he always talks about like a couple of real animals. And then he like s- finds a way to insert this fictional version of an animal the ROUSs mm-hmm. is a good example, right? He like situates mm-hmm. them to where like you believe that it's a real thing, um, but it's so clearly not. Um, but uh, I don't know. It's fun how he does that. He, it's the way he does it throughout the book with with like everything, right? Yeah, and so like the zoo is different. It's there. There is a, like a dungeon. I forget what the dungeon is called. Uh, the pit, something pit in the movie. I can't remember mm-hmm. right now. But um, it's you know it's kind of kind of does the same thing but there's no like zoo that they have to get through all these creatures and everything like that in the movie um i don't know it's kind of it's kind of interesting it's obviously very cruel and like awful for these animals and everything he's like captured these animals just to like right. hunt them and well it makes like, it makes humperdinck such a villain which i think is sort of him and the yeah. count are like beyond redemption right which i think is the point right he, he, i think the count even tortures a dog like a wild dog which is uh, the other thing is like the book yeah. is kind of darker than the movie i would say like it goes t- to more places yeah, I think what goes on is something that I wanted. To, I kind of wanted to say for the movie, but I'll just say it now. But uh, in the way that the book is is looking back at classic fantasy literature and kind of you know being meta about it, and also sort of being a send up of that, then you also have when he goes to adapt it into a film, he's not just adapting it from fantasy literature; he's adapting it from fantasy films, like classic fantasy films. So then you have that added element of being like, okay, what typically was done in classic... So it's almost like he's doing an adaptation of classic films by using this adaptation of classic literature. Um, so like that, I, I do think like that has something to do with it because there, those, those darker themes weren't like super, super relevant in in classic uh, fantasy films. And there, you know, that's, that's, there are exceptions, obviously, but I just mean like in comparison to what eventually would come with all the sort of super dark and gritty fantasy that eventually, you know, came to the theater screens. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, so there's a scene, there's like a, additional information that I do want to talk about a little bit. We get some of it, I think in the movie, if I remember correctly, but it was, um, Inigo's past where he's talking about his father and his obsession with like make, like he's this famous sword maker. And then the reason that he takes on the, um, the job of making the sword for the six fingered man is it's a challenge, right? It's like a, the specific challenge of it makes him like obsess over it and try and design this sword. And it's like, Oh, this is what I wanted. I wanted something specific that was really difficult. And, um, I, I thought he was having fun with, um, sort of the art artist's mindset when he was talking about this, I kept like taking a step back and thinking he was talking about like writing a book or crafting a screenplay and like what he finds interesting in projects and also kind of making fun of himself and like recognizing that he's being silly when he's doing these things sometimes, but then also like how obsessed you can get and then how much your work can be dismissed, even though you put all this time into it. I don't know. There was just so much going on in that scene, which, which I know isn't like central to the story in some ways, but in other ways it is because it's all about an ego who again, I think is a very important figure for this book. Yeah. I mean, each, each character represents something that, that I think everybody can see in themselves, right? Everybody has like the really driven part of them that like, you know, in whatever specific thing they decide, they can be really driven and that's their passion. And then you get someone like Fezzik and he, he can represent sort of like, 
your childhood or he can represent like your your most innocent sort of self and then and then also your fears he, he represents and then the man in black like i think i think they're very like archetypal characters that he's he's been able to dig into and you know make sympathetic and and interesting and and have cool backstories and and again play with sort of just blending genre yeah. with like blending fantasy with sort of like darker elements and blending fantasy with comedic elements and well and, and another sort of meta thing he plays with is uh when you're like manipulating the reader on purpose so one of the things that you get is uh the story tells you wesley dies or his father tells him wesley's about to die coming up um and it really upsets him and uh, it, it felt like it was this like it, it, it's like talking about fake outs and how they are both effective, but also can be frustrating in a way. And then, like, it's it's doing it while faking you out, you know? And, like, of course, like, mm-hmm. Wesley is going to be resurrected, we find out later. But um, it, it does. It tries to fake you out. And he tries to tell you, oh, no, no, he's going to die. And Prince Humperdinck's going to live. And, it, you know, the story doesn't end in a way that you're going to want. And, and I love that it does both, like, because in, in some sense, it doesn't end in the way that you want. But in many senses, it does. It feels like it's a happily ever after type story, um, even right. while the story's telling you, you know, life isn't fair. He plays with that again at the very end with Morgan Stern's ending versus Goldman's a, a, like sort of added on ending, his abridgment ending that he wanted to add on. As we get to that section, we cut back into like the narration of Goldman, the the a bridger and he says like this is where my father would stop and i never knew that there was anything after this and that was sort of the happily ever after they're getting away they're all riding away on horses and then that's when he as a kid was like oh that felt very abrupt and very sudden and quick Mm -hmm. i wasn't expecting it to end that way i thought there'd be a little more and then later on come to find out in morgan stern's actual ending it's sort of like there it's not really over like you you find out buttercup's baby no, no, no. The the section right before Buttercup's Baby, because okay. we get the section where he basically says, like, um, you know, Inigo would would be beaten in battle and Fezzik would fall, would would be beaten in a in a fight and then all this stuff. And basically, oh, he's he like, got lost. Are you talking about that when it's like talking about the escape? Yes, that's what that's what it is. Basically, where um, he has this happier ending because of his father, but the, his father didn't read the actual ending and the whole the whole sort of. Uh, moral of the story for for morgan stern was life isn't fair and so his ending reflected that as well is that like even though they got away even though it seems like everything's going to be okay life isn't fair so you know they would i I think he says something about like buttercup and wesley you might not they they might like have troubles or something like that like and uh, buttercup would lose her looks and physic would lose a fight exactly so that's the ending that's like life isn't fair and his ending while also he was he was he he allowed himself to have two endings in that exactly way, if that makes sense so so the i want to actually read the actual line because i think it, it's, it's a little more nuanced than life isn't fair um he says but i also have to say for the umpty umpth time that life isn't fair it's just fairer than death that's all uh right so so i think that's interesting too right because He's giving an excuse for why we would like a story that is fair. And why do we like fairy tales where life is fair and the good, and the good prevails and, and, and evil is, is vanquished when our life isn't like that? And, and I think he's, he's like, it's like aspirational, I think he's trying to say there, right? Like, um, because we're alive, we're able to aspire to things being fair in a way that they aren't really in, in, in 
real life. Am I making any sense? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, it makes sense. It, I think there's something there with like, even in the story of his, even in, within his like meta story, he's saying like, this is a story that ends this way because this is sort of the, the trajectory of these stories. And mm -hmm. he's like, you know, life isn't fair, but it's fairer than death. In this case, they, you know, escape death. And like, it seems like everything's for the most part, like the status quo is, is going to be sort of back to what they would have hoped. If that makes sense. Like it is, and, but and it whereas, isn't, like, right. Like he's playing with both, he, he, you know, and then, and then he does that even further with buttercup's baby, which we, which I think we should get into now. Um, yeah, if you're it. ready, um, yeah. buttercup's baby was added the 25th anniversary edition and it's presented as um william goldman went with his grandson to florin city and they went to a museum and they had this whole he had this whole thing with stephen king as a character which we've already talked about he's going to adapt mm -hmm. this and he goes to the museum to see the real things and then i love that there was like a there was like a museum attendant who like didn't like his writing and didn't want to let him in and he had to be convinced by stephen king to let him in and i felt like that was like <laughs> a, another author stand-in like critic self-critic thing that I thought was really fun. He's like, and his, his grandson's like, don't talk to that guy. Fuck that guy. Um, and then they're finding these, these journals and, and he finds in the journal that um, Morgan Cern originally was going to have Inigo die. And he gets really mad at him for that. And he's like, how, how could he do this? And then later he finds out that like Morgan Cern realized that was a mistake. And it's all layered with this like, oh, how could you change history? Because this really happened. But then I'm like on a meta level thinking this is all about Goldman and his actual writing of this novel. And I think at some point he probably had an ego dying, right? Like Goldman did. And so now he's right. like put it in a museum in this fictional city for him and his fictional grandson, maybe, I don't know, to go find and, and talk about. It's so fun. It's so layered and, 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 and delicious. And all of that's before right. we actually get to the short story slash first chapter that we get at the end. But I, the framing device for that, I, I found just really, really cool. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, he took he took what he did and then added another layer to it, right? Yeah. He basically took it into another meta layer of of contextualizing, like, how it all came together, how the stories all came together and what it represented to, like, this meta world that he's created. Like, well, he, and it's he also, has, like, like, when you, like, later on, go back and revisit some famous work you did and you talk about your process, that's like his version of doing that with this and, and and to do that he has to go visit a museum it's so funny and like we said before it's just clever it's just cle all, all the way clever like to to say like oh yeah it's been so this is the 25th anniversary and knowing what people how much people love princess bride now because of the adaptation because of this novel and like being able to go back into that world write something that completely fits in with everything else that he's already written and it doesn't feel like it skips a beat it sort of is just like and here's the logical steps that it takes to go further i don't know it's just it's just to revisit it and not to like totally whiff you know what i mean like it, it makes sense within the story and it also like adds other layers of sort of like meta textual i don't know like analogies that are going on Absolutely, man. Um, but we got to talk about what actually happens in this story because it's one of my favorite parts. Um, I will say, if you haven't read it, I recommend you go read it. Don't listen to us sort of gloss over it because it's like it's worth reading. But if you right. have read it, <laughs> this is for you. <laughs> um, man, I thought it was really good, and, and it was. And I loved. He also said within the metatextual part that this was written by Morgan Stern as an older man, and it was reflected. Mm -hmm. And I love that right. because it was clearly written by so Goldman as an older man. Right. We're getting reflections of reflections. Yeah. And um, 
I really like. So basically the story is what happened off that escape. And then um, it's like the desperate escape. And then um, we get a fragment of a scene about Anigo and how he uh, he like fell in love with this like um, idealized version of a woman that he then met in real life, which is a very fairy tale like thing to happen, um, which was cool. And then we get the escape where they get onto the revenge, the ship, and then they, they end up swimming into a maelstrom. And Fezzik goes like full Greek god, in my opinion, at this point. He um yeah. he is he's unstoppable. He 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 um is able to wrestle sharks and fight squids, and um he becomes this protector on this on this island. And then there's like a love scene that I actually thought was really touching, um, and, and sort of presented in a funny way too at the same time, but also beautifully written. And then um and then we get the 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 birth of Waverly, which was their daughter they have. And um, it's also presented at, in, out of time, like it's it's out of order, which is really fascinating. And we get Fezzik um, jumping from a cliff to save her at the beginning of, of the these additional materials. And then it circles back around to that at the end again. And um, it's presented uh, ambiguously of like whether or not he's able to survive and save the baby. Um, what was your what was your take on all that? I mean, I definitely think he saved the baby for sure. For sure, whether or not he survived. survived sorry, is what I, right. what I meant to say. Yeah, right. Um, I mean, I thought it was really fun to you know. This is what people I, I can I can I can hear his his reader saying like, well, I want more. I just wanted mm-hmm. a little bit more. I love these characters, even within this like meta nature. Like, give me like the actual narrative. Like, I need more from Fezzik and an ego and all of them. And so he and then so twenty five year anniversary. He's like, I will write a little bit more. And like I said, to to revisit this world and to not sort of to miss. Like, I I feel like he really nailed down what what sort of he was le- what what he was leading to with the the actual original material, and then was able to add in sort of new elements that I think again like added to this idea of somebody looking back at a work that people it's now beloved and then saying like, you know, what could be added and what questions could be answered and then what other questions can be raised. Yeah. And like you said, to revisit something that is so classic and beloved and to, to risk messing it up by going in and going, I'm going to add a new ending to it essentially is what he does here. Um, but because it's so meta, he's able to play with these ideas. Um, and, yeah, I think he nails it. Like, I actually love this ending. I prefer it to just where the book ends and where the movie ends. Um, yeah, it's cool. I, I felt like it was a denouement that we needed and that was beautiful and 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 fitting for these characters and makes me, just deepens my affection for them. Like, Fezzik, like, he's everyone's favorite already. But this Fezzik felt like it was informed by Andre the Giant because it was written after the film adaptation. Yeah, exactly. And so I felt like there was a deep love for this man who had died at the point of him writing this and the way he embodied that character. And I felt like that was all coming through on the page and how he becomes this like protector and he's probably going to die, but maybe he doesn't. Maybe he lives on, which I think is talking about Andre the Giant in a way. And I don't know, man, it was it was emotional. Like I, I really connected with this part. And in the, like the sort of the materials before the the sort of preface stuff, he talks about like interacting with Andre the mm-hmm. Giant on set and how he was so good with kids and how like the kids were like climbing on him and stuff. Yeah. 
Um, and that, you know, went on to, like you said, to inform Fezzik, I think, being the protector of this child and like how he would just like he he was even strong, like he had written this in, impossibly strong character and then met Andre the Giant in real life and was like, holy shit, Andre the Giant's like bigger than this character that I wrote. So right. like take that to the next level. And yeah, I, I love that. Um, and I did want to say one other thing. In there, he talks about basically saying like the the final version of of uh, Buttercup's baby will be in the fiftieth anniversary. Yeah. Of uh, which I think when I was looking at it, it would be twenty twenty three. But like you said, he he passed away. I don't know if there is material to be added on when for the fortieth or the fiftieth. So I did read about I did read a little bit about that. Um, it's I don't okay. know. It's kind of sad, but also like kind of fitting. Um, he wanted to write more Princess Bride, mm-hmm. and he wanted to write the full book that this was. And I think we get references to some of his ideas he had at the end of this, right? Like it kind of talks about, oh, I could tell you about the time Fezzik did that. And I could tell you about what happened in this, in this. So there's like a madman who, who kidnaps Waverly. He's just like no skin. He has no, no skin, skin and like face. no face. And like he, that's who Fezzik is chasing and then, and then all this stuff. And like, what is the, you know, like, he even says, like, I, you know, you'd have to read on to find out what this even is. So right now it doesn't mm-hmm. it's not anything. It's just like a um, an antagonist. Like it's kind of like a, a, a faceless a threat. antagonist threat. Yeah. Um, which maybe is like mortality or something. I don't know. Um, it's it's fascinating. But he said that he, no, despite his best efforts, couldn't come up with enough for the book. Like he felt like he didn't have enough ideas for it. Um, and it seems like that's where it's going to always end up staying. Now, maybe there's some material that'll come out at some point. I don't know. Um, but if this is what the final definitive version of this book is, I think it's great. Um, right. And I think there's a lot more. If you go in thinking like, why would I want to read The Princess Bride? I, I get what it is. I've seen the movie. There's so much more here than the movie, in my opinion. Like mm-hmm. it, it, Because it was written after the movie. It really kind of takes everything, it takes the movie in stride, folds it into this meta narrative that is really about Goldman's views on storytelling and his views on life. And it's his life work in a lot of ways. Like he, he talks about it as as if it is, but then um, it's also about adaptation and it's about um, passing on stories to your children and, and all this different stuff. It's so many things are wrapped up in here that that I think makes the book pretty incredible. And um, I'm going to be interested to see how this affects my viewing of the movie when we come to it, um, because I think it's going to improve it. I think it's, I, I think I'm going to feel differently about the film than I, than I have in the past. That's my suspicion. Yeah. At least. I mean, I'm excited with, with the context of this that we just read. I'm excited to, to really dig into the movie now and see like what I've missed before and what, you know, coming from the intentions of William Goldman, the writer into William Goldman, the screenplay. Writer, yeah. It is cool you know that I mean? we're like, getting, that consistency of, I mean, you do have a different director come in, but the screenwriter right. is there, right? Um, I also yeah. loved the stuff at the start where he was talking about how, like, no one wants to see the writer once the once the movie actually starts getting made, and how right. he doesn't know where to stand. He was always in the, he's like always in the shot somehow, and he'd have to move. And it, it must be a surreal yeah. experience to see your to have your story being made and be know that you created it and like you're so central to it, but then at that point you feel like you don't fit, you don't belong. And I think he's really capturing that feeling when he physically is in the wrong spot. Right. And then not to mention, like, he, you know, he wrote 
the novel, he wrote the screenplay, and then it, and then there's a point when Robin Wright, who plays Buttercup in the movie, her like dress catches fire, and he like freaks out, and he's like, "It's on fire! It's on fire!" And then Rob Reiner, the director, turns to her, him and is like, "It's supposed to be on fire. You wrote like it was. That's how you wrote it in the story. That's how it was in the screenplay." Yeah. And then he's, he's just like so like out of, like he's not in his element. Yeah. So it's just funny to see how like fish out of water he is. Man, there. I, I feel like like you could look at like every one of these moments and like really dial into like. What is this one about? What does this mean? What is he trying to say here? And, um, you know, so I, I think this would be a really fun book to read with people and talk about with it. You know what I mean? Read with someone else who who has also seen it and talk about it. Um, you know, and we invite you to write in with us. Like, we want to hear your observations after reading this. Ink to film at, uh, at gmail.com. Talk to us about what you think he was trying to say, um, because I, I find this kind of stuff really fascinating. And I really enjoyed reading this book. So I'm really glad we ended up tackling this one. Uh, we will be back next week for the movie. So, you know, look forward to that. Um, if you like this episode, please let us know in the form of a rating and review on whatever podcast app you use. It helps us get the word out and, um, you know, get more get more listeners. Yeah, and I did want to say this this episode was voted on by our Council of Inklings on on Facebook. So that's something we do occasionally. Make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And... Um, the Council of Inklings is on Facebook. We post polls in there for upcoming projects. We post any sort of adaptation news we see. Um, and also our Patreon, if you'd like to support us, um, please go to our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash ink to film. We have many different tiers, but we, we put out bonus episodes every month. Um, and that's just for $2 for that, for the, for those bonus episodes. And then we have other tiers going up from mm-hmm. there. And we wanted to thank Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. All right. That was a lot of fun. I'm so looking forward to getting into this movie. It's, you know, it's been like a year since I've seen it. So <laughs> just a year. I think it's been again. four yeah. or five for me, probably. But yeah. I, I won't have I won't have had a viewing like this one's going to be. I, I can sense that already. So, yeah, I'm very excited. Hopefully all of you rewatch um, and join us next week. Until next time. Thanks for listening. Yeah.